Amen. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. <clears throat> and when he observed him, he was afraid and said, <clears throat> what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So he, when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa the next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheep bound by the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unclean or common. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry of Simon for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied them. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and those close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. And Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask you, or I ask then, for what reason have you sent me? Sir Cor Cornelius said, Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, 
Your prayers have been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging at the, in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. And Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism with John, uh, which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all, all things which he both did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that, he, that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was, had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So this morning, we have before us the second of what I intend to be a two-part study in the book of Acts. And just by way of review, last week we noted that Acts chapter 10, we, we have in Acts chapter 10 the record of a very pivotal event in the New Testament church. And Acts chapter 10 is where the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Now, I'm not entirely sure how you see things. But sometimes I think that uh, we're so far removed from things that we read about in the Bible, so far removed that we fail to grasp, we fail uh, to understand the gravity of the events that we read about. Things like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. I mean, that's almost 2,000 years ago. And, uh, you know, since that day of Pentecost. But we talk about it as if it was something that was nothing to really get excited about. It. Yeah, yeah, the day of Pentecost, sure. Now, I know that we're all Christians, and uh, we all believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again the third day, but sometimes I think that it's hard for us as Christians to really wrap our minds around uh, everything that has gone into our salvation. Of course, we believe Jesus is God, but even that can be difficult to try to comprehend. The fact that Jesus is God from all eternity past is far to the left on that time zone 
I, uh, time, I, I know I'm showing my right hand, but for you, it's the left. As far to the left as you can go back in time, as far as uh, your mind will allow you to consider just going back, 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 back. Hey, Jesus was there, right? He was God. And that can be hard for, for some people to conceptualize, um, hard for them to understand. But then to consider as far as you can look to the left, as far as you can look down that road that's ahead of you, as far as your mind will allow you to see into the future, well, guess what? Jesus is going to be there. And he's still going to be God at that place too, at that point in time. Those kind of ideas can be hard uh, to contemplate from time to time, to wrap our minds around. You know, to think that Jesus Christ is eternally God from all eternity past and all eternity future. You know, then try to understand, okay, I'm, I'm finally beginning to grasp, not fully, but get a little bit of light on that. Then to understand that he left, you know, heaven. He left uh, communion with the Father, communion with the Holy Spirit to be born of a virgin. Right? Talk about a tough one now to wrap your mind around. But that's the reality of the gospel. That's the reality. Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, became a man and he dwelt among us. Right? He died on the cross, shedding his blood to wash us from our sins. And our, our faith in him, our faith in who he is, our faith in what he has done. It's through that faith that we're able to receive forgiveness for our sins. Those are all truths that we embrace. But I think that they're truths, even though that uh, we embrace those truths, I think that they're truths that we don't fully understand, maybe. I know I don't fully understand all these truths entail, but even more so, sometimes I think that we don't fully understand the gospel going to the Gentiles. What was involved in that? The fact that Gentiles could be saved. I think it's more radical than what any of us can even begin to imagine. Right? Just as we saw last week, God has had a plan from all eternity past, that Gentiles would be saved. That's always been in God's playbook. That was always his plan from all eternity. And prior to the cross, hey, Gentiles were saved. But the way that they were saved was that they first had to become a Jew, right? They had to live a kosher life. They had to be circumcised. They, then they could come into the family of God. And then they could receive the promises of God. And even after the cross, that was the thinking, right? That was the logical progression. I mean, hey, Jesus was Jewish, right? Christianity at that time early on was a sect of the Jews. It was a branch of Judaism. The disciples, they were all Jews. Everyone who was present on the day of Pentecost, everyone that heard the disciples speaking in unknown tongues, that group of 120, they were all Jews. And everyone that was saved that day, all 3,000 of them, even though they were from all over the known world, they too were all Jews. 
So the logical conclusion after the cross was if you wanted to come to Christ, you needed to go to, through that process and then you could receive Jesus Christ and then you could be saved. And what we see in this chapter is that wasn't God's plan. We can come directly to Jesus to be saved, right? There's no middleman. We don't have to join some church or join some organization. We don't have to perform some ritual first. None of that is needed. You know, I've shared it before, but, you know, I was saved in the middle of my apartment. You know, I met this girl. Her name was Tina. I thank God for Tina every day. And she kept telling me how much Jesus loved me, which was a novel thought that somebody cared about me. And then after hearing that for about three months, I literally got on my knees in the middle of my apartment and I, and I was broken. I was crying. You know, I was tired of living. I said, Lord, if that's true, if, you'll, if you really do love me, please show me. And, and come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. You know, if you'll do that, I'll give you my life. I just, I just want to know you. And in the miracle of that moment, I was saved. I was forgiven. I was cleansed uh, all of all my wrongdoing. And I became a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as I placed my faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atonement, my name was written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to talk to anyone. I didn't have to become anything. I was saved. And I think we can often take these things for granted. But in reality, they're actually very radical. And again, for the early church, for this time in history, we're reading about in the Acts, for this time in history, the idea that a Gentile could be saved that was a crazy, out-of-your-mind, unthinkable thought. Just can't happen. Again, I don't think we fully understand how crazy these things are that we're reading about here in Acts chapter 10. God spoke through an angel to Cornelius, saying, send for Peter. At the same time, you know, God speaks through a vision to Peter. Peter sees this... <coughs> sheep descending from heaven, full of wild beasts, creeping things, uh, you know, um, birds of the air, all kinds of stuff. And he hears a, the Lord's voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord. Man, I've never put anything unclean or common in my mouth. And the Lord said to Peter, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Don't do it. Don't even dare to do it. And as Peter was wondering about what this vision meant, you know, he's wondering uh, in himself, you know, what's going on? What's the Lord trying to tell me? What's it all mean? Two servants and a Roman soldier um, whom Cornelius sent to retrieve Peter are right there standing at the door of the house he's staying in. And, and they tell Peter what had happened. Basically, they say, you know, Cornelius has sent us to get you, to bring you to Caesarea so you could talk to him, you know? And Peter lodges them that day and gets ready to go with them the next morning. And that's where we pick up the story now in verse 24. Verse 24 says, And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting uh, for them and had called together all his relatives and close friends. You know, as you read through the Bible, Every now and then, I mean, you run across these verses that are just 
nuggets, right? Cornelius was waiting for him. I mean, to me, that's worth underlining in your Bible. I mean, think about it. What kind of faith did Cornelius have? He heard from the Lord saying, go send someone to Joppa to get Peter. And his friends could have said, who's Peter? You know, I don't know. I mean, he's some Jewish guy, I guess. You think he's going to come? Don't forget Cornelius. Joppa's a two-day journey away, right? But Cornelius fully expects Peter to come. He's fully aware that Jews have no dealings with Gentiles. He knows that Jews aren't willing to come into a house uh, of a Gentile. He knows all this, and yet he fully expects and he believes that God's up to something. We don't understand it, but what Cornelius expects to happen, Peter not only coming into house, he expects Peter to come into the house that he's filled with all kinds of Gentile friends and relatives. I mean, it's ridiculous. Cornelius, you've lost your mind, right? What do you mean you're gonna send for this Jew named Peter and you expect him to come? You're insane. And again, not only did Cornelius expect Peter to come. In faith, he fills his house with all of his friends and relatives. And, and, and again, I don't think we fully grasp, you know, the crazy faith that Cornelius had here and all that's going on. As I, as I thought about this, my first thought was, Cornelius's faith puts me to shame. It really does. Let me ask you, what's your faith look like? What are you believing God for? You know, I ask myself the question, Gary, what are you believing God for? What is it that if you shared it with your friends and family, maybe even other believers, what you're believing God for, it would make them say, what is it that would make them say, that's crazy talk. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous, Gary, no. And again, I'd ask you, what are you believing God for? You know, we certainly believe that God's a big God, you know? I want to be the guy that thinks great things about God. And I want to be the guy that expects great things from God. I want to be the guy who's believing God for unimaginable things. I want to be the guy who's seeking God, asking him to open doors. And, and I want to be willing to walk through those doors as he opens them, even when everyone else is saying, you're crazy. That's silliness. You know, it doesn't even make any earthly sense. You know, William Carey, the father of modern missions, the great missionary to India, 1790s, he, he said, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. So I'd like to ask you this morning, does that describe your walk? Is that the summation of your faith, of your Christianity? Philippians 2, 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Have you ever read that verse and thought, what the heck does that mean? 
I mean, Paul, what are you talking about? Work out my own salvation. Is salvation dependent on what I do? Well, obviously, that's not what the verse means. Salvation has nothing to do with anything that I do. You know, what a good boy I am. Helping little old ladies across the street doesn't make me righteous before God. Salvation is not of works. It's solely based on what Christ has done for us. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Te teles, I paid in full, right? There's nothing that can be added to our salvation. So what did Paul mean when he said, work out your own salvation? Personally, I think it's interesting as we have this phrase in English, we use it, work out. And, and uh, that's exactly what I think Paul's getting out. When we, we're to work out our salvation, when you work out, your muscles get bigger, they get stronger, and they become more defined, right? In a similar way, we're to work out our faith. We're to exercise our faith. Let's not be satisfied believing God for little things, right? Let's seek God. Let's believe him for big things. And then let that lead us to believe him for gigantic things, right? Which will inevitably lead us to believe him for unimaginable things. You know, that's what I think what Paul is encouraging us to do in that verse, is to work out our faith. You know, uh, I think Scott prayed it when we met this morning, right? God's not done with any of us, right? He's not done with us. He has greater things he wants to accomplish in and through each one of us. Let's seek God and ask him to lead us into those things that he wants to work in and through us. And then let's let our faith grow, right? Let's take steps of faith as the Lord leads us, right? Let's take steps of faith in fear and trembling. We don't want to be flippant about our faith, right? We don't want to move. We want to move forward in fear and trembling because our God is a holy God, right? He's a great God. He's a God that's above all things. He's a God that's worthy of all praise, not just our praise, all praise. You know, he's the Lord of Lord and he's the King of Kings. And I think that that's the attitude that we need to have when we come, when we come before God. Understanding who God is and that he's able and even more than able, he desires to do exceedingly abundantly above. Anything that we ask or think, I believe that's the truth. Paul continues in Philippians 2.13, and he says, for. Now, for is a reason word. Most of the time, when you read for in the, uh, in the Bible, it can also be translated because. Right? Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, right? We want to trust God for those big things. When we attempt for the kingdom's sake, those things that others say are crazy, if we're walking in communion with, with the Lord, how do you know that it's not the Lord that's putting that thing into your heart, putting that idea into your heart? A lot of times the Lord is working in us to do his will. The Lord 
wants, you know, uh, wants us to trust him. So he puts an idea in our heart, in our mind. And, and we go to prayer. We say, Lord, I want to trust you for that. I want to believe you for that. And he gives you the desire. That's the will to do. Right? And then he gives you the desire, the will to do by giving you the idea. But then he brings in the doing part. He opens the doors. He leads you through. He shows you, uh, you know, how to accomplish that thing. Giving you the wisdom on how to go about it. You know, it's all him working in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Well, why? Why does he do all this? Because it pleases him. It says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Right? We'll never be pleasing to our Lord without faith. We should never attempt to try to be pleasing to him without faith. We need to exercise our faith in the Lord and we need to place our hope in him. Psalm 147 tells us it pleases the Lord when we, when we hope in him. And I think Cornelius is such a great example for us, you know, of a man that's, that's believing the Lord for great things. He's exercising his faith in the Lord, trusting, seeking, hoping, and responding in faith in what he's hearing from the Lord. You know, he sent these guys to go get Peter. It's a two-day journey down there to Joppa, and it's a two-day journey back. And I'm sure the whole time he's encouraging his friends, man, he's going to be here. He's going to be here anytime. You know, he has this expectant faith. You know, I wonder how many times we utter prayers with no expectation that those things would ever be answered by God. You know, I confess, you know, I've prayed prayers that in reality, man, I've prayed prayers with the opposite of expectant faith. You know, I've offered many, many prayers that have been accompanied with doubt. And you know, the challenge, not only for me, but I want to challenge us. I think it's the, the Spirit speaking to us this morning. Let's not be that way. Let's not be that way. Let's be a people who are attempting great things for God and expecting great things from God. Well, Cornelius has this great faith and he calls all his friends and relatives together. Verse 25, as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Again, here's an interesting thing. Peter comes in, he goes into the Gentile house. Peter is beginning to understand that the idea that a Gentile could make a Jew unclean, he's beginning to understand that there's no biblical basis for that thought. It was just a custom, a tradition, just a belief. And it was contrary to what God had in mind. You know, the Jews were to be the light of the world. They were to reach out to the world and be a witness of God's goodness and of his grace and of his mercy. Well, as we read here, Peter enters the house. Cornelius fell down, uh, met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. And verse 26 says, Peter lifted him up and said, that's completely appropriate because I'm the first pope. You know, that, that, of course that's not what it said. And I'm just joking, right? I didn't even get a courtesy laugh. I don't mind telling you guys. <laughs> there, there it is, a late coming courtesy laugh. But my point is Peter's not the head of the church. That's my point. 
right? James is actually the head of the church at this time. And we're going to see that in Acts 15 and other places in the book of Acts as we continue on. You might say, okay, James was the head of the church. But what about Peter? Was he the first pope? Personally, I don't think so. But then again, I don't really know. What, do I, what I do know about Peter is he held a unique position within the church. He had a unique position of authority within the church. If you want to say that he was the first pope, okay, you can believe that if, if you like. You know, I'm okay with you believing that. I personally don't believe that. But I don't think that's something that any of us should ever break fellowship with a person that does have that view, Right? The problem that I do have, though, in regards to this is the idea that Peter passed down that authority to others, that the position that he held within the church is passed down, right? Uh, You know, if you want to say he's the first pope, okay. But passing down the keys of the kingdom to another man throughout history, that's categorically false. Verse 25, as Peter came in, was coming in, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshiped him. And Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I myself am also a man. Don't you just love seeing humility in men who hold respected positions? I mean, I think it is so special to witness that. And I find it so funny the airs that people put on when they have achieved, you know, uh, some level of authority, some office, some position. You guys know I'm a doctor. I have postgraduate certifications and credentials that not many doctors actually possess. But I'm just Gary. <laughs> you know, that's the way I introduce myself to others. Hi, I'm Gary. I remember a time when I got hired to work in the clinic, uh, hired by the Army to work in the clinic in Germany. You know, where you're headed out to a briefing. It was one of my first days. We were headed out to a briefing. And I met this lady in the hallway. And she asked me what my name was because she knew that I was new. And I said, hi, my name's Gary. What's yours? And she says, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And I said, oh, okay. All right. You know, I thought we were being friends. I didn't know we were using titles. And, you know, could I get a do-over, please? <laughs> you know? I mean, it cracks me up that people think that they're all that in a bag of chips when they achieve some position, some level of authority, some, some status in life. You know what? We're all the same. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. Uh, You know, Pope Francis puts his pants on like each one of us, unless he's unusually agile for his age. He can do two at one time. I don't know. But the prayers of the Pope, right, they don't get to God any faster, right? And God doesn't give them any greater attention than he does our prayers. We're all men, right? We're all sinners saved by grace here. We're all the same. We're all the same. And we see here in Peter just this humility. And I think it's just so beautiful to witness in Peter. It's something that, you know, I'm sure that all of us could work more on. So what's Peter, what's happening here? You know, we see Cornelius falling down at Peter's feet and worshiping. What's happening? Well, I think what's happening is Cornelius, remember, has been seeking the Lord. Right? And Peter, the one who God said, go and get, and when he comes, he's going to tell you everything that you need to do, right? Cornelius is just seeking to honor Peter here. It's an expression of honor. And yet, Peter is honoring Cornelius by walking two days to get to his house. 
Cornelius sent us to get you and take you, take you to him, Peter. And Peter could have said, Cornelius who? You know what? I'm an apostle. I'm a very busy guy. You know, if Cornelius wants to talk to me, he can walk two days and come see me. And you know what? Sadly, man, that's the attitude of, of a lot of people in the church, many pastors in the church. That's kind of their attitude. And it shouldn't be that way, right? May we be like Peter, you know, as he seeks to honor his brother. Interestingly, I think we see Cornelius honoring Peter and we see at the same time Peter honoring Cornelius. And isn't what that what the Bible instructs us to do as Christians? We're to honor one another. Not that you should go to your knees when I walk into the room or vice versa, right? But the Bible instructs us, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of of others. And in Romans 12, 10, we read, be kindly affectionate to one another and brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing in the body of Christ. It's a sweet smelling aroma to, to God when we honor one another, when we love one another. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 12, to those that are weaker parts of the body, we should bestow upon them greater honor. And those less desirable parts of the body, we're to give them even more honor. That's God's heart for the body of Christ. We're to love one another. We're to honor one another. We're to prefer and esteem one another. God's heart is for us to think of others as better than ourselves, and we're to consider their needs and their interests because that's what greatly blesses our God's heart, our Savior's heart. You know, we have this example of exactly what we're talking about being played out here, just a beautiful way between Peter and Cornelius, Peter honoring Cornelius as Cornelius honors Peter uh, the way they did, which was customary in that culture. Verse 27 says, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Peter goes into the house of Cornelius and he sees all these other Gentiles gathered together. And again, such a wonderful thing to witness. Peter says, I'm not going to let tradition, the tradition of the Jews, get in the way of the Word of God. I'm not going to let, you know, traditions get in the way of what God wants me to do. You know, I'm going to go for it, right? It doesn't matter how crazy it sounds. It doesn't matter uh, what others may think. You know, it doesn't matter how many other people go with me or not. And, and you know, as I was thinking about this, it reminds me of that song that we sing. You know, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. You know, the number of people going with me has no bearing, has to have no bearing on any of us, whether or not we go. You know, I don't care what others are doing. I'm going to run my race. You know, I'm going to run after Jesus with all my heart. I'm going to go for it with Jesus the best I can with all my strength, mind, soul, body, heart, 
You know, I've made up my mind, and that's the end of it. And that's what Peter is basically saying. He says, the Lord has shown me that this is what's right. In the past, traditions have held me back, right? Wrong thinking has held me back. But now I'm going forward with the Lord. In verse 27, it says, when he went into the house, he found many who had come together. And how beautiful is that? They're all sitting around just waiting for Peter all because of Cornelius' faith. Verse 28, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation? Peter's just up front with them, right? He's just laying it out before them. But as God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. With that as a background, Peter goes on to say, verse 29, Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now, I ask you, for what reason have you sent for me? And you just got to love Cornelius. I mean, I love this guy. He goes on to explain his situation. He lays it out for Peter. He tells Peter the experience that he had. Verse 30. So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he'll speak to you. You know, I find it so interesting that Cornelius just explains to Peter, hey, four days ago I was praying, right? And we shouldn't miss it. We shouldn't understand, stand, misunderstand. We shouldn't misunderstand. What he's saying. He's not saying that he was praying, Oh Lord, bless my day, bless the meal, bless mommy and daddy, give me good dreams, not bad dreams. You know, Cornelius told Peter that he was praying and fasting. Fasting shows us the intensity of his prayers, right? He's pressing in because he wants with all of his heart to hear from the Lord. Now, here's something interesting to consider. Is Cornelius saved right now? The answer is no. He's not saved. He's not saved at this point. Wait a minute, Gary. Uh, I thought it says Proverbs uh, 28. One who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Yeah, that's certainly true. That's what God said. But the issue is if I have no intention whatsoever to listen to or respond to God, in area of my, any area of my life, if I'm just praying, God, give me, God, bless me, and that's all I'm in it for, it's just me, I'm only interested in a one-sided relationship, the heck with God and whatever he wants, that prayer is an abomination to God, right? God is not going to honor or answer the prayer of those people, right? But the person who's honestly seeking the Lord God is going to answer his prayer. The seeking Savior hears the prayers of the seeking heart. Cornelius is seeking God, but he's not just praying and hoping to hear from God. He's fasting. Again, it speaks to us regarding the intensity of his prayers. Have you ever fasted? Uh, you know, I'm sure you have. You know, fasting and prayer should be a regular part of our Christianity, 
But have you ever fasted and prayed and a man in bright clothing didn't stand by your bed? Have you ever fasted and prayed and didn't hear anything from the Lord? Have you ever fasted and prayed for a long time and the answer seemed to be nothing more than just silence? That's actually what I imagine happened with Cornelius. He fasted and prayed, and I bet you he did it for a long time, right? I'd be willing to bet almost anything that this was his, on his heart, this issue. It's on his heart for a long, long time. You know, a, a long time. You go ahead and put a number on it, whatever number you think a long time is, however long you think he fasted and prayed. 30 days? Six months? You know, maybe... Uh, he fasted a meal a day for six months. You know, maybe he's fasting every meal for 20 days. I don't know. But I think if we, we would be honest, there comes a time we give into our flesh when it says, you know what? You're just wasting your time. Give it up. God's not going to answer you. I think that there's a little bit of our flesh that's more than willing to say, do you really believe that God... That God is there? I mean, do you really believe that God is listening, much less interested in whatever it is that you're praying about? You know, come on, your prayers are going up, hitting the ceiling, and bouncing right back to earth. You know, I confess. My flesh has told me that. I've been there before. But here's the thing we need to see about Cornelius. Cornelius is given to us as an example. What if Cornelius quit praying, uh, uh, quit praying the day before his prayer was answered. What would have happened then? Well, he never would have experienced salvation. He would have remained unsaved. What if he quit a week before? Right? He would not experience any of the things that uh, we're going to read about in this story. Right? He never would have experienced salvation. He never would have experienced the weight of his sins being lifted off of him. He never would have experienced being filled with the Holy Spirit to overflowing where he's speaking in, in unknown tongues, praising God. Remember Jesus told the parable in Luke 18, saying that men ought to pray uh, and not lose hearts. One of my favorite parables. It's a parable of this, this lady. She goes to an unjust judge asking for justice, and the judge keeps putting her off, putting her off. Finally, the judge says within himself, you know, you know, even though I don't fear God and man, you know, yet because this widow troubles me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give, I'm going to avenge her. Let she keep coming and wear me out. And the point of that parable is not that if we keep praying, God is going to give up and answer our prayers because we're wearing him out. No. If that's the, what you come away with from that parable, then you've missed the point of that parable by a country mile. Right? The parable teaches us that if this unjust judge right, is willing to hear the cries of this poor widow, how much more our loving Heavenly Father is willing to hear our prayers Right? And answer our prayers. How much more our Heavenly Father is willing to hear the prayers of His children. That's the reality of it. God longs to hear your prayers. He desires greatly to hear the prayers of His saints and then to answer them. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, hey, Gare, you know, why then does God wait 
to answer our prayers. You know what? I don't know. I don't know why he waits. Right? I have no idea. I think most of the time it's for our protection. I think a lot of time it's for somebody else's protection. I used to say, I'm not going to say it anymore. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy Steve a motorcycle. And he'd crash it. And, you know, he did that on his own. But that's the way it is. Sometimes, you know, it's for other people's protection. Why does God wait? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that people are looking into our lives, right? They're looking at you to see how you deal with God, how you deal with God in the midst of hardship. And I believe it's because they're not able to survive that kind of hardship. I, I believe it's because they're not able to bear up, you know, under that kind of pressure. So what God does is he entrusts these trials. He entrusts these hardships to us that through it, he might be glorified. While others are looking on, they, they witness how you glorify God through it. And we see that in John chapter 9. Remember, Jesus and the disciple, they're leaving the, 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 the temple and they see this man born blind. And they say to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would uh, be born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born this way so that after some 40 years of living with his blindness, after some 40 years of praying and seeking the Lord for healing, seeking the Lord regarding his blindness, praying and asking God to help and direct his life, Jesus said, so that the works of God, the power of God, the glory of God would be revealed in him so that other people would see it. One of the Old Testament verses that's really impacted me in this area is Isaiah 30, verse 18. And it says, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. You know, this verse is so important uh, to remember as we pray. We, we know that there's a, there's a lot of things that we've all prayed for. You know, there's a lot of things that I'm praying for. There's a lot of things that I've um, been on my heart for a long time and I've been praying for years about, in some cases, many years. And, and we need to remember Isaiah 30, verse 18. It says that the Lord will wait. You know what? I don't really like that word, wait. I don't really like waiting for much at all. I don't like waiting for anything. Have you ever been in line for 10 or 15 minutes and somebody cuts in front of you and goes ahead of you? You know, how does that make you feel? You know, have you ever been praying for a long period of time and you notice other people's prayers seem to get answered much more quickly than yours do? Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he'll be exalted that he may have mercy on you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed. And it can also be translated, oh, how happy are all those who wait for him. You know, the way I see this verse is the Lord will wait in order that he may bestow uh, his mercy on me. You know, there have been times that Tina and I have gone through financial difficulties. 
And I know you've been there. You know what it's like. But let's say you're struggling financially and you just get hit with this bill that, you know, it was, it was unexpected, right? And you don't have the money for it. So you pray, you say, oh, Lord, you, you, you see the need, Lord. Would you provide for us, please, right? And just then after you get done praying, you go out to the mailbox, you know, you get the mail, you bring it in and there's an unexpected check and it's just enough to cover the bill that you just received. And so you go back and you say, oh, you know, never mind, Lord, we got it covered. You know, and we just chalk it up to coincidence. But if the Lord waits, and because he's waiting, we go to our knees. You know, we fall on our face before the Lord. We're seeking him with all of our heart. We're seeking him with intensity, maybe even fasting, right? And you pray, Lord, I need you to provide for this. Lord, please, please show yourself strong on, on our behalf. Please, we're in a desperate place here, Lord. Please, would you provide? And then the Lord moves and answers. But it took a week or two or more. But he answers with that unexpected check in the mail. What happens then? You throw your hands up and you begin to praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. You begin to exalt him. Lord, you're so good. You're so gracious to me. I praise you and glorify your name. When we wrestle with the Lord, wrestling with him in prayer, that's when we exalt him in our lives. And the Lord would say to each one of us, it's a blessing to wait on him. It's a blessing for us to wait upon him. Well, here we see Cornelius waiting in the Lord. He's praying, he's fasting, he's seeking the Lord, he's waiting on the Lord. An angel stood before him, verse 33. You can take that verse down. It says, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. This whole story reminds me of Daniel. Again, it's another story you guys know. Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah and he reads that uh, his people are going to be in captivity 70, 70 years. And Daniel realizes, man, we're coming close to that 70-year mark. So he begins to pray, begins to seek the Lord. And the Lord answers him. But it took 21 days. It took three long weeks. And remember what the angel said to Daniel? He said, as soon as you started praying, Daniel, I was sent. I was sent to you. But he had to fight, right, with demonic forces, which delayed his coming. We can't forget that there's spiritual warfare going on all around us in the unseen realms. The Bible says that the battle isn't with flesh and blood. It's against principalities. It's against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You know, the angel says to Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. And he says, your, your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Are they remembered because God forgot them? No, God doesn't forget anything. He never loses his keys, his car keys, his house keys. That's just Bible speak for God knows what's going on. He sees all that you've done. He sees all of your heart. In verse 32, it said, he said, send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Sa Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he'll speak to you. So I sent to you immediately and, and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we're all present before God to hear all the things that God has commanded you. Man, Cornelius, 
He has such a sweet, sweet attitude about him. I mean, I just love this guy. His attitude is, teach us. Just open up and pour it in. Teach us. We're here. We're listening. We're committed to obeying all that God has for us. I mean, I tell you what. That attitude is a preacher's dream. I tell you. You know, years ago, I was invited to go to Cuba and teach in a remote village. And as it explained to me, we would fly into Havana. We would drive as far as we could. And then we would, uh, you know, get on donkeys. And we'd travel three, four days on donkeys until we arrived at this village. And, uh, you know, I was so excited about this invitation. I was all in. And then they told me what to expect to. One, you got to bring a white shirt. Long sleeve, white shirt. That's what preachers wear. And you know what? We're going to teach for three or four hours. Then we're going to take a break. And because the people are so poor, you know, what they would do is they would tithe food. And, and after the teaching, the morning teaching, they'd get together and they'd make this huge meal and everyone would eat. And then the teaching would resume for another four to six hours. And if that teaching didn't go well into the night, people would be disappointed, right? What a contrast that is to the church in America, you know? I, I'm not talking about you guys. But you know what? I tell you what, I see people starting to fidget around 35, 40 minute mark. And uh, the pressure's on. I got to get moving, right? I've gone places that if I taught just an hour, they'd say to me, for real, is that, is that it? That's all you got for us? <sighs> Sadly, in the church, it seems like there's just sermonettes for Christianettes. You know, little sermons for little believers. It's a preacher's dream to teach people who are hungering and thirsting for the Word of God. But that fire, that hunger and thirst for the Word of God, it doesn't seem to be present in the Western churches today. But that's not what's going on here. Cornelius has gathered together all his family and friends, right? And they're there ready to be taught. They've come with an expectation to hear from God. Now, as I said in the beginning, I intended this to be a two-part series, but uh, we're going to stop here. Uh, we're going to end it here. We'll have another part, Lord willing, next week. But what are the takeaways from this, these lessons of faith from Cornelius? What are the takeaways? Well, first, I think, you know what? Let's, ex let's exercise faith in the Lord. Let's not be satisfied with believing uh, God for little things. Let's believe God for great things, right? Let's be willing to, to step out in faith that the Lord is leading, even when others are questioning the wisdom of taking that step. Let's trust God for great things, and let's expect God uh, to do great things that are exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or begin to imagine. Secondly, let's seek to honor and love one another. You know, let's esteem one another highly. Let's prefer one another. Putting the needs of others before our own. Thirdly, let's make seeking the Lord with prayer, fasting, and intensity part of our Christianity, part of our everyday Christianity. I'm not saying fast every day, but you know what? Hey, really get with the Lord, press in and just seek his heart. 
Fourth, let's be willing to wait on him without giving up, no matter how long it takes. You know, I know that's a hard one. I really do. But the Lord says the result is great blessing and happiness in our lives. And fifth, let's come to church. Let's come to Bible study. Let's come before the Lord in our daily devotions, right? With a hunger and a thirst to be taught by him with an expectation to hear his voice, an expectation to receive from him with a predetermined obedience to him. You know, I think if we incorporate these lessons of faith that we see in Cornelius's life, if we incorporate these things into our daily walks, not only is it going to result in untold blessing in our lives, but it will, be, it will bring great pleasure and blessing to the heart of our Heavenly Father, right? As well as to the heart of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith pleases God. And our hope placed in Him blesses His heart to a great extent. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for these lessons. And Lord, for me this week, is it just they've spoken to me. They've challenged me. Lord, this is the type of man I want to be. Lord, work these things in me. At times I think it's impossible. Lord, work these things in me. Work these things in us. At times I think that's impossible. Lord, we're all in different places, but Lord, give us a hunger. Give us a thirst. Help us to be willing to exercise faith. Help us to be willing to go when no one else is going. Help us willing to be willing to speak when no one else is speaking. Help us to be willing to glorify you when everyone else is turned away from you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we recognize as the days get darker, as we approach your return, these things are going to be harder and harder for us to incorporate in our lives. Lord, help us today to begin to incorporate these things in our lives. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.